morning. We are in Nehemiah chapter 8 today. Nehemiah 8. Thank you, Moy, and the rest of the team. I don't typically tell Moy what to sing. He just picks really great songs by God's grace. Today we're talking about the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. That's what we'll call this, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. Some of you may have been told this or asked this in the past, would you like to come to our church's revival? It's very common in the South and in Texas, and specifically in smaller towns. You'd have a revival that would last three or four days, and it'd be in the evening. Sometimes it would go late into the evenings, and many times the Lord in His kindness would save some, or it would change you even as a believer. Well, what does the word revival mean? Too many times we use these terms for granted. We don't even know what they mean. Sure, I'll come. What's it mean? I don't know. Uh, revive, it's actually, it's, it's, it's the Latin word. Uh, uh, vivere, it means to live. And then you put R-E in front of it, and that means again, to live again. It means to give life. And it looks differently for believers and unbelievers to be revived, as we'll see what is happening in this chapter today. For believers, uh, if you will, it's like you've been reawakened to your sin. And not only to your sin, but of God's presence and God's holiness and how he saved you. And it doesn't mean that you become a believer because you already are a believer, but it's the idea is the Lord reawakens you again. And you may think of that Uh, In your past, I know for me, I either became a believer at 6 or 14 or 21. Some of y'all don't like that, and I don't like that either, because it just, you know, you go, I don't know, I wish I knew, but I love what Ruth Bell Graham says. She, She would say, I don't know what time the sun rose this morning, but I know it's shining on me now. And that's a pretty good way to put it. And why would you say those three, uh, different times. Well, that goes beyond the the length of this sermon, but we'll put it this way. At age 21, for the first time, I realized perhaps more in depth than any other time what a great sinner I was. I was living uh, with some guys from Campus Crusade for Christ, and they really encouraged me in my Christian walk, and um, I felt like I was reawakened. I believe I was a believer beforehand, but I was once again reawakened to what a big sinner I was and what a great savior I had. So that's what ha- the way it works. That's the way revival works for a believer. It could happen many times in your life. It's almost like the Lord raises you up several steps in your sanctification. Do you know what I speak of, some of you? Um, what about an unbeliever? Well, revival is different for him. It's literally where God raises the dead. Uh, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and God raises you from the dead and gives you life. He breathes as he breathed into Adam, new life, but this is new spiritual life, and you become a new creation. Uh, Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand him, and he says, in essence, do I need to crawl back into my mother's womb? And then Jesus says something really profound, and he says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so it is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. What he tells Nicodemus, in essence, is that if God doesn't bear you up from above, which is what the word born again can be translated, born from above, you will never know God. 
In basically what Jesus is, in essence, is quoting Jonah, where he has spit out of the belly of that sea monster. Right beforehand, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah says, I'm not gonna get out of this unless the Lord wants this to happen. Not only physically, but spiritually. The only reason why you came to know Jesus Christ is God bore you up. You can pray, you can witness, but only God can send revival. And he doesn't always send it. Many times he doesn't. Today, he does send it in this chapter, and I want us to take a look at this. Uh, But I will tell you this, before we go straight into the true uh, revival of this chapter, the very center of true revival, you you know what it is? It's the word of God. God uses his word to transform, to give new life. It happened in the time of the 1500s of the Reformation that they studied the word of God and the spirit of God used the word of God to change them, to give them life from the dead. And then we also saw that in the reformers' grandchildren, spiritually speaking, the spiritual grandchildren who were called the Puritans. Um, Some of you don't ever read the Puritans. Shame on you. You should read the Puritans. They're not perfect. Sometimes they can be legalistic, but most times they're really rich in biblical understanding. These these men and women of the 16 and 1700s. J.I. Packer talks about the Puritans, and he says, Puritanism was above all else a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture, and serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written word. And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it and then to live it out and give out its teaching. So the word of God, the spirit of God is gonna use to spring life and give new life into these people. And it's fascinating to watch. Now, let me give you an outline, verses one through eight of chapter eight, we see the spirit of God working through the word of God. You'll see that. Verses nine through 12, the people are corrected and redirected. You'll see that. And then finally, verse 13 through 18, the feast of booths celebrated. And all these things take place because God brought revival. He literally breathed new life into these people. So you may be wondering, why is Nehemiah still here? I mean, beyond the fact that the book is written by him, why is he still in Jerusalem? What was he called to do? He was called to to rebuild the wall. He built it in 52 days, but why is he staying? Well, I think part of the reason is his, his concern is not just for the physical safety of the people, but the spiritual. You see, unless the hearts of the Jews are changed, the walls are not gonna help them. Now, let's dive into the text. This is the word of God. Verse one, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, Remember Ezra, we studied him last. He's a priest and scribe. To bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So here's the situation. They gather as one man. When you see that, that means everybody's coming. And notice they meet at the water gate. That should give you question. Why aren't they meeting at the temple? They have a temple. Well, I think the Spirit initiated this one. You see, the most popular place in town was where people drew water, and they would draw water at the Gihon Spring, 
at the water gate. Do you know what water is a picture of? We're going to see it here in a little while in a baptism. Water is a picture of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, at the feast, Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I want you to try this someday. Try to plant something out in the yard and never give it water. And you go, well, a cactus. But even a cactus after a while needs some water. Water is a picture of life. And the only reason why these people are going to have life, they're going to be at the water gate, which is a picture of the Spirit that is going to fall on these people. So um, it says, bring the people, tell Ezra. Notice it's not Ezra saying, I'm going to teach you all. They're telling Ezra, go bring the book of Moses, which the Lord commanded Israel. So the Holy Spirit is drawing the people to tell Ezra, can you bring us the word? They asked for it. Now, what is the book of the, of the law of Moses? Well, this is the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the Torah. It's Israel's instruction book on how to walk with God. You know, I think it's interesting that people don't go to Ezra and say, Ezra, God seems to be doing something here. We need, to, we need a good book here, something, maybe on psychology or maybe how to vote just the right person in office. And I think things would really change for us. No, they say, bring us the book. If there's any hope for us as a congregation, any hope for America, it's the Spirit of God working through the Word of God. It's the Word. Verse two and three. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand. That would be the little ones. What they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Well, if you were to look in Leviticus 23, you would see that what these people are about to celebrate is the Feast of Trumpets, which happened the first day of the seventh month. What the priests would do is they would play their trumpets. Uh, it would call the people to announce God working among them. It would signal the preparation for the Day of Atonement, which would take place a few days later. And notice the people, all those who could understand. That means you didn't have really a children's church in this particular time. You had little kids. Sometimes, have you ever been shocked? Sometimes your kids can get more out of the sermon than you. Be careful. But yeah, sometimes that is the case. Many times they can understand sometimes the, Greek, uh, the deeper things of Scripture. So he read it before the square. 1 Timothy 4.13, it says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Why does it say that? Why does Paul tell Timothy that? Well, you have to remember, folks, the printing press. When did it arrive? 1500s. 1,500 years, roughly after the New Testament was written. There are historical counts of people stealing the church's one Bible. So they had to chain the Bible to the pulpit. Well, what if you did happen to steal your own Bible? You couldn't read it anyway. Most of the people were illiterate. And so really this concept that we have every day of being able to get into his word and that morning, perhaps the evening, we have our own personal Bible. 
that was absent for the first 1,500 years of the church. Maybe in the Old Testament, or rather in the oldest church, the ancient church of the first century, you might have the book of Mark. You, you could have the whole Old Testament, but not everyone had it. No, we should be so thankful for the gift that God has given us in his word. You know, one thing I love about Massachusetts 400 years ago, um, <laughs> something called the Old Deluder Act, or rather Old Deluder Satan Act of 1647. This was in Massachusetts. The way it worked is they, they uh, had a law that once you had 50 households in a town, you were required to hire a teacher to teach the students to read and write. In Massachusetts in the 1640s, they had a 100% literacy rate. Listen to me. Y'all, in America, we don't have a 100% literacy rate. But there they did. Why did they so encourage reading and writing? Well, the old deluder Satan act, that should reveal something. They knew that the word of God brings life. Where does it say that in scripture? Glad you asked. Psalm 119, verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me, gives me life. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Psalm 119, verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. Revive me, give me life from your word. It's interesting. You think the Spirit intentionally put Psalm 119 right smack dab in the middle of our Bibles? So we would realize the word of God gives me life. Why do I not read it more often? And once again, it's not for a believer. It's not one-time justification. For us, it's sanctification. This is the way you grow in the Christian life. So what he's talking about here, what the people are saying is, will you come and preach the word? We're talking about Bible exposition is what they wanted Ezra to do. I like what J.I. Packer said. He said, all true preaching is biblical interpretation. That is elucidation and application of God's word written. Alistair Begg told this story of a visitor who came to a church in Aberdeen, Scotland. After the service, the man greeted the preacher named William Still right after the service, and he said to him, you don't preach. Perplexed, Still asked what his critic meant. Well, the man replied, you just take a passage from the Bible and explain what it means. Mr. Still replied, brother, that is preaching. It's preaching. How long does he do this in Ezra? He does it for six hours. So y'all prepare yourselves. Well, I got to tell you this, it would take 12 hours to publicly proclaim reading the five books of the Torah. It'd take a long time, according to some studies. So obviously, Ezra takes selected portions from the Old Testament, from those five books, and you go, how could they last for six hours? Well, I would tell you this, I think you listen to what you revere. It has nothing to do with a person up front, it has everything to do with the words of Scripture. The word gives life. Uh, Spurgeon tells of a story named, uh, from a guy named Roland Hill. Roland Hill was an 18th century preacher. Some of the people began to complain that they didn't like his preaching. They liked the word, but they didn't like his preaching, the delivery. And he said this, supposing you went to hear the will of one of your relatives read 
and you were expecting a legacy from him, that means you're expecting some cash or something to that effect, you would hardly think of criticizing the manner in which the lawyer read the will. Rather, it would be all attention to hear whether anything was left to you, and if so, how much. That is the way to hear the gospel preached. It's the word. It's the word. Verse 4, Ezra the priest, or rather the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that had made up for that purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on the right hand, and Pidiaiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. For the first time in Scripture, what do you see? Right here. You see, uh, the Tower of Wood is what it is in Hebrew. It's a podium. He gets up on a podium, and he has six on his right hand, seven on his left. We're not certain if it was a huge podium or if they were standing beneath him as he had some sort of lectern. We don't know exactly. And what are these men here for? Perhaps they are there because he would get tired after an hour, and maybe they would preach some of the word as well. We just don't know. Verse 5 and 6, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. If I were to ask you today, what does the term Amen, Amen mean? Perhaps some of you think, well, that's kind of like the end, because that's the end of my prayer. No, it's not. Uh, Amen, so be it. It is true. So that's what they're saying here. And note this, that um, they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. If you and I could take a, a time travel machine and go back and see this, we would go, oh no, they're Muslims. What has happened here? Because that's what, they put their face to the ground as they're worshiping the Lord. I'm not encouraging that here. I'm just saying is that's what they did. It's not prescribed, but it is how slaves bowed down to their masters. They would put their nose to the ground. And notice all the people stood. Uh, They seem to have high regard, much in the same way, if you will, if we were to say the president of the United States, or if you're in a courtroom, the judge, all rise. They did it out of honor. And by the way, I think this is where our tradition began, specifically in Protestant churches where at the time of the reading of the word and everybody rises. Now, be careful with that. I think think that's a beautiful thing. I don't think it's prescriptive in Scripture. You know how I know that? Because certain people cannot stand. And so uh, I had a roommate that had a, uh, well, he was, had gotten paralyzed and there was a time where the church that we were part of took high regard. Now, everyone stand in the honor of God's word, and that's a good thing. That's not bad. But I felt bad for my friend who couldn't stand, so I would just sit with him. And so certainly, it's the spirit. It's the spirit of the law. Let's not, let's not be legalistic about these things. But the people thought, hey, this is the word of God, and so they stood. So let's find out what happens. Verse 7 and 8, also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin. Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peleiah, the Levites, help the people to understand the law. 
while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people could understand the reading. Let me give you a couple of options of what's going on here. When it says this phrase, help the people understand, gave the sense, let me give you one of two oh, ways to apply this or interpret the text. Number one, why are they doing this? It could be because the Jews have begun to lose their language. Remember, they've been in Babylon where they began to read and write and speak Aramaic. If I were to ask you, what language did Jesus speak when he was on the earth? Aramaic. This is coming from their time in Babylon. It's, it's really questionable whether many of them knew how to speak Hebrew. It's fascinating that Hebrew is it's the only exception in the history of the world where a dead language has come back to life. That is, unless Latin should make a strong showing somewhere, uh, Hebrew is the only one. It's, it's, as a matter of fact, is the only Canaanite language that's still spoken today. It's Hebrew. So uh, that came back in the 19th and 20th century. Is that what's going on? The people can't understand Hebrew. It could be. But I think it's more of the, it could be this, the second option. Ezra, it seems to be reading a selection of the scripture and then he stops. And then he has the Levites explain and apply the word of God to these people. And the spirit of God using the word of God breathes out life to these people. And so the Bible isn't just for teaching, is it? First uh, Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for Teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So Ezra's teaching stops. Levites explain, and then he continues on. They do this for six hours. Wow. And here's what we see, is we see, I think, in Scripture, three attributes for teaching the Word of God. There's perhaps several, but I'll just give you three, perhaps that I think that are most important if ever you are called to teach the word of God, and some of you go, I'm not a teacher. You got kids? You got grandkids? Oh, you're teaching. And remember, sometimes kids catch more than what you teach. Much of what is from them is, it's much of what you're trying to show them is, sadly, they, they catch sometimes more than you realize. Uh, but a few things to uh, to just show importance to is number one, it should be accurate and clear. And I put those two together because they really go together, accurate and clear. Paul actually prays for this, that he would be clear in his teaching. Second Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Should be careful. We don't want to be slipshod in our explanations of the Bible. Uh, nor do we want to shoot too high for people. My dad used to say, get the cookies where people can reach them. <laughs> Martin Luther, people gave him a hard time about this in the 1500s because he would, as he sought to teach the word, he didn't want to make it too simplistic. He wanted to challenge people, but he also didn't want to make it too high so people wouldn't understand. Uh, some of the intellectuals gave him a hard time about it. And Luther had a kind of a witty response. He says, if educated people were not impressed, the door is open. Let them be gone. So accurate and clear. Number two, uh, no, before I tell you that, just to, just to show you this, at Grace Church, 
and I'm sure Fred Campbell would agree with this and other elders, is we want to give you as many opportunities as you can to understand the Word of God. We want to show it to you in sermons, Sunday school classes of all ages, small groups, Bible studies. And for some of you new people that are not used to that, you go, man, y'all sure do Bible, Bible, Bible. Yeah, that's what we do. We don't, we're not ashamed of that. We don't back away from that because we know that that's what gives you life. And that's what the Word uses. That's what the Scripture uses. That's what the Spirit uses to give you life. So it should be accurate and clear. So number two, it should be love. Love. First Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I'm not saying that we don't teach hard passages of Scripture. We have to teach them. But the goal is we want you to love Jesus Christ. We want you to love one another. We want you even to love your enemies. Yeah. And finally, number three, applied to life. It should be applied to life. Uh, John 13, 17, Jesus says, as he's done washing the feet of his apostles, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing is not coming from just knowing, although you have to know in order to do. So let's not discount uh, teaching, but you have to do that. I, I would say, as a matter of fact, it's actually dangerous to study the word of God without the goal of obeying. It's dangerous. You're falling into Pharisaism. True believers do not view theology as an end in itself. They can't. I like what John Calvin said about this, and he introduced me to a new word I'd never heard of. He says, the word of God is not to teach us to prattle, I'm going to use that sometime, I'm sure. Prattle means foolish talk. It doesn't encourage foolish talk. It shouldn't. Nor to make us eloquent and subtle, and I know not what. No, the word of God is to reform our life so that it is known that we desire to serve God and to give ourselves entirely to him and to conform ourselves to his good will. The goal of teaching, the goal of learning is not mere knowledge. It has to translate into obedience, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, Christ says. So here we got true revival. In our last, oh, second half of this, we're going to see four characteristics that come with true revival. Repentance, sadness, joy, and obedience. We'll see this today. Verse 9, and Nehemiah was the governor, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Here we see the first characteristic of true repentance is, or rather true revival is repentance. We'll see that more next week. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, under the teaching of Ezra, they were awakened and cut to the heart and they felt the edge of the law of God like a sword opening up their hearts, tearing, cutting, and killing. Remember what Ezra's telling them, God is holy, you are not. And he, so he's just encouraging that, that hey, uh, don't you know, repentance is good, but then he'll tell them not to mourn or weep. Jeff, I thought you said true revival would include sadness. Well, stay with me here. Remember, this is the, this is the festival of the trumpets. Uh, in the Hebrew calendar, they had five or six holidays a year, depending upon how you gauge that. And the, the Feast of Trumpets was supposed to be happy, 
Really, all the holidays were supposed to be happy except for one, the one exception to the rule where there would be fasting and crying, and that was Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. But the Feast of Trumpets was supposed to be happy. No work, you rejoice in the Lord, you celebrate God's goodness. And the people are weeping, and they're like, don't do this. This is not wrong festival, wrong one. Verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here, we're gonna see another reason why not to be sad. But before we go there, literally in the Hebrew, he says, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet. Now he's not calling for gluttony and drunkenness, just to be clear. But he is calling them to enjoy the good gifts of food and drink that God has provided for his people. And then he says, don't be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Your strength. I'm not certain that's the best way to translate it. It's, it's this uh, Hebrew word, ma'uzakem, and it really means place of safety. It can be translated place of strength, but more so place of safety. The Holman Christian Standard uses this phrase, uh, translates it this way, the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. It's a place of safety. It's a place you run to be protected. And it's interesting because what he's telling them, well, remember, if you were to study the first five books of the Old Testament, you would see this. If you, don't obey, if you obey the Lord, there's blessing. What if you don't obey the Lord? It's curses. He tells them uh, fever, consumption, enemy attacks, plague, pestilence. And now the people are crying. They're like, we haven't obeyed the Lord. We haven't done it for years upon years. And then he says, don't cry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, this is really interesting, folks. He says, be joyful because your protection is in the Lord. Your protection from the Lord is in the Lord. I'm going to say that again. Your protection from the Lord is in the Lord. That's why many unbelievers, if they're scared of God, they'll run and they'll never go to him. And the Lord says, you don't seem to understand. The only way you can be protected from my wrath is you have to give in to the son who took your wrath. If you don't find yourself in the son, then yes, you will. You will fill my wrath. But the only way is to run to the cross, run to the fortress that we have in Christ. And it's interesting, although Israel deserves God's wrath, she is protected because her sins are covered. And he says, run to the stronghold because the joy of the Lord is your safety. So this generation amazingly does. The next generation doesn't. The one where Jesus says in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Why would a hen take the chicks under her wings? She's protecting the chicks from the wrath that is gonna fall. And Jesus is saying that to his present congregation or generation, and they don't do it. Well, why does this generation do so? Why does this generation flee to the place of safety, the, uh, the, um, the fortress? Well, it's because God made them willing. Ultimately, it's the same thing that's true of us. 
invited you to come to Jesus Christ and your neighbor who's heard the gospel much clearer than you ever did doesn't. Why? Well, because we deserve God's judgment, we are protected from God's wrath, we are forgiven. And God changed our will so that we saw Jesus as beautiful as he is. We can never look throughout eternity and go, way to go, Jeff Brown, you got it together. Too bad they didn't. No, you see, the Lord's not sharing that glory with us. Glory of salvation belongs to him. Your role, as I mentioned before, in salvation was getting lost, being born lost. Ephesians 2 says it like this, by nature we are children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. Breathed new life into us. We repented and believed. I want to follow him. That's all God's gift. Verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Literally, in, it says in the Hebrew, be still. Not, not be quiet, but be still for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. I would say the second characteristic we see here in revival is sadness. I know this sounds shocking to some of you, but there are appropriate times for believers to be sad in our relationship with the Lord. How does that square with scripture? I'm glad you asked. There is, number one, a one-time justification, repentance unto life. It's the other side of the coin of faith. It's not separate. Matthew 5, 4 said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's this mourning for sin. When we first come to Christ, we realize how wicked we are, and that's a beautiful thing. That's not bad. Uh, not only that, but there's a sort of an ongoing sanctification, repentance. We, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1 8 talks about the true believer confesses his sin, not as a way to gain favor with God. He already has it. He's just agreeing with God that he is, in fact, a sinner, and in particular, over particular sins. What did Jesus, rather, what did Peter do after he denied Jesus a third time? Did he walk away going, I'm forgiven in Christ? I feel great. No, he went out and wept. He went out and wept. Whereas Judas, who also rejected Christ, went out and killed himself. There's a difference between the believers and the unbelievers. So sometimes we have sadness because of our sin, and that's okay. We, we pray and we trust the Lord, and we know we've already been forgiven for that at the cross, so that's great. So we confess it. But not only that, we actually even have a sadness in our prayers, the man, by God's grace, through the Spirit who wrote, rejoice always, can say in Romans 9, 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my brethren according to the flesh. And what Paul says, you can read it, Paul says, I wish I could switch places with them and endure the wrath of God, but sadly, they're going to endure his wrath because they're not coming to Christ. So Paul himself says, I have, I'll say it again, great sorrow and unceasing anguish. You know what's something wrong with Americans these days? We don't realize sometimes it's okay to be sad. No, I've got to take something for that. I can't be sad. Why? Paul is sad. There's times that we're sad that we're not with Christ. It's okay to be sad, especially at times of revival when the Lord is breathing new life into you and you realize how wicked you are. Even as a believer, why do I keep doing the things that I do? It sounds like it's right out of Scripture now. 
Continuing on, verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. What is the send portions business? Well, Deuteronomy 26, 12, it says, even as they fasted, they were to give up food and money to Levites, the strangers, the widows, the orphans. As Paul is about to go on his missionary journey, Galatians 2.10, they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing we were eager to do. The truly poor, yeah, yes, definitely. So what you see here is they are saying, go out and have a great time. Enjoy, this is a gift of God. Because, notice this, they understood the words that were declared to them. First characteristic of true revival we see is repentance. It's a gift of God, 2 Timothy 2.25. We also see that it is uh, sadness. But third characteristic, we see joy. The biblical commands to be joyful are written over 200 times in Scripture. Do you think it's important? And it's not fake either. Your joy is in the Lord. We see Paul and Silas in Acts 16. They've been beaten by the jailer who will later tell them, what must I do to be saved? And they're bleeding, and they've got their legs in the stocks. The way it worked in stocks is they would separate your legs. Very painful. And what are they doing in the midst of that? Complaining? Singing in prison. And it says, and everyone was listening. I think that's fascinating. Once again, just to be clear, being sad is, is not necessarily wrong. Sometimes we can be sad and it's okay. But it's not okay to stay there. Why? Well, as a believer, we are forgiven. We are loved. God is our Father who cares for us. All things are working for our good. And the best is yet to come, right? The chief end of man, it says, according to Westminster Confession, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Joy is part of the Christian life. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Paul writes that even as he can also write, I have sadness in my heart towards my brothers that are not yet in Christ. And then some of you would say, Jeff, I, I just cannot rejoice I cannot rejoice in the Lord. I can't. The reason why is because I don't, I don't feel joyful. If I don't feel joyful, I cannot be joyful, which is not in Scripture, by the way. Question, is there anything stronger than our feelings? I would say the Spirit of God. I don't know about you, but that's the way we would have to answer that. So I would say the Spirit of God can help, and He does help you follow the commands of Christ. And we should tell him, Lord, I cannot do this. I don't have, I don't feel it. I feel none of this. And I think the Lord longs for those sort of prayers because he knows that we need to come to him with empty buckets and say, Lord, you have to fill this. And he does, and he can. I don't, be careful, I'm not calling for a quick fix. No. Some of us, some of us also have a personality that's more melancholy. It's gonna be harder for you. It's okay. But the Lord calls us to this. And so what he calls us to is not to be joyful. He calls us to be joyful in the Lord. That's very different. So it's not in our circumstances. I would say beware of trusting your feelings. Luther came up with a neat little poem about this because he himself struggled with this. He said, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. Our warrant or trust is the word of God, not else is worth believing. It's a good one to note. 
So now we have in verse 13 through 15, they've kept the festival of the trumpets, now the festival of the booths. On the second day of the heads, verse 13 through 15, on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priest and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy branches to make booths as it is written. Fourth characteristic of a revival, we saw repentance, sadness, joy, fourth, obedience. These people obey the word of God. If the word of God says it, we're going to do it. And they start cutting down all these leafy branches and trees because they know that they're supposed to live in booths or tabernacles. Uh, what they were was basically lean-tos. And you would uh, live in these places for like a week. And what were these people doing? Well, they were doing what God tells them to do in Leviticus 23, and that is to reenact the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Because that's how they had to do it. Why would God have them to do that? To remember the past, to renew their commitment to the Lord and his word, People could ask us, why did y'all do that 25th anniversary celebration? What was that about? You would know if you came because you would go, no, it's an opportunity to remember God's faithfulness, that he's still with us and recalling us to to continue to commit to the Lord and his word. So verse 16 through 18, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate in the... uh, square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in their booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. We'll study that next week. So suffice it to say, even though they had celebrated the Feast of Booths in Ezra 3, this one was the biggest ever, it seems. Perhaps there was many as 50 to 100,000 people living in booths, these little lean-tos with all the branches and such. And they did it for a week. And notice this, it said in the, uh, the, the days of Jeshua, and you go, I thought his name was Joshua. You know, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho? Yes. Well, Jeshua is a derivative of that name, different spelling, but perhaps God has the Spirit write it in there as a reminder that the high priest living in the city, after the return from Babylon, his name was Jeshua. And maybe as a reminder to the people, just as the high priest is living with you now, so that Jeshua, the other guy, he led you into the promised land, you're back. You people are back again. And there's very great rejoicing. Question, why is there very great rejoicing? Nothing's changed. They're still under the foot of Persia. They're still not their own nation. They still have great difficulties. And some of us would look up at here today and go, Jeff, nothing has changed in my situation. When you're calling us to rejoice in the Lord, nothing has changed. Well, looky here. There's a mirror you're looking at now in Nehemiah 8. Nothing has changed. And yet they know the Bible. 
and they're finding their joy in the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse 15, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. You see, some of us today have tried to perhaps live life in our own strength. And the Lord says, that's not where your strength is. It's in me. And now what's gonna happen is these people are gonna turn and they're gonna follow the Lord and they're gonna trust the Lord because the spirit of God working through the word of God is changing them. Some of you don't have the joy of the Lord and it could be just because you're going through hard times and we need to be patient with one another on this. Be careful not to preach at folks, but perhaps listen to them and weep with them. And yet I would say some of you perhaps need to hear again, your joy should be in the Lord. Strive for it, fight for it, beg God for it. He's the only one who can bring it. But some of you don't have the joy of the Lord because he's not yet your strength. He's not your fortress. He's not your safety. You are still under the wrath of God. You are not prepared for the coming judgment. Do you hear what I'm telling you? You're not born again. The Bible says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. My encouragement today is realize what a big sinner you are on God's side. The wages of your sin is death. That means hell eternal. Come to Christ today. Trust him alone for your salvation. And for the rest of us, let me draw you back once again to the word of God. Love it. Beg the Lord for a love for it. Beg him for even revival in your own life today. He can bring it. And he tends to do it through his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Help us to be people of your word. Um, Pray for anybody in here that does not yet know Jesus is their Savior. Would you grant them faith? Help them to believe, Lord. Only you can cause this. If you don't do it, Lord, we cannot fabricate this. There's nothing we, nothing can be done. And for the rest of us that already know Jesus, I pray that you would just grant in us a passion for the Son. And Lord, help us to see that in you, all the promises of God come to fulfillment and our best days are ahead of us. In your Son's name we pray it. Amen.